I'll open it in prayer, and then we will dive into week two. If you're going through the book, that book with us, we're in chapter three mostly, although we're going to talk about a few other things tonight, uh, of that book, <coughs> week two for tonight. So I'll open us in prayer, and then we'll dive in. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its <clears throat> richness and clarity and everything that's in it. As we learn, um, some of us know some of these things, sure. Some of this is repeat for a few of us, but uh, some of us don't. And um, hopefully we cover also some new things on how to consume your word. It's one of the most important things we're going to learn to do in our entire life. And so we should talk about it from time to time. And so thank you for this series. Thank you for the opportunity to do it. Thank you for this beautiful weather. Um, thank you for tonight as you bless this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Glad everybody's here. Okay, so we're going through just a quick intro, a little bit of what I did last week. We're going through a shortage, uh, a famine for God's word in this world. And the odd thing about this type of famine is normally when you have a famine, you have scarcity of a product. There's not enough food. There's not enough rice. Egypt. God leads Joseph into Egypt and eventually makes him the number two guy and gives him the vision that there's going to be the clarity that there's going to be a famine so that he can prepare. So in that famine, it was because of a shortage of something or weather. You get no rain. This type of famine is very different. There's no scarcity or shortage of the product. In this case, it's God's word, God's speech. But yet there's still a famine. So famine, when there's plenty of the product available, it's not due to a shortage of the product, but a shortage of the desire or the willingness to consume that product, and I think that's what we're running into here. So, the cause of biblical famine, <coughs> excuse me, maybe I'll get this straight at some point tonight. The cause of biblical famine in our land, it's not a shortage of Bibles. You have them on your phone. I'm going to show you a, a few different copies of the Bible that I've got and just a little bit if, if you're we're going to talk about choosing a translation in a particular study Bible tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about that. So I'll show you some examples that I have. Uh, don't ask me how many Bibles I have. I don't even know anymore. It's not a shortage of Bibles, but a spiritual anorexia for the Bible. An unwillingness to consume what God wants to tell you. So you are hungry. You're looking at the plate. You see that the food's good, but just you shove the plate away. So again, the book up on the slide, that's the book we're going through tonight, would be basically chapter three loosely, but uh, we'll talk about a few other things. So question tonight, you can think about this or you can actually answer if you want to answer. What's the hardest part of reading God's word for you? What's the hardest part of getting into it and reading it? Tonight we're going to talk about week two, read what does it say? What's the hardest part of getting into God's Word or reading it for some of you? Monotonous? Repetition? Okay. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. Sure. Sometimes with the names, uh, by the way, I'll point you to a few good study, by, study tools online that are free, and they can even help you with the names. You can click on, well, any word. 
you can click on the little speaker symbol and they'll pronounce it for you. So it's fantastic. But usually with the names and the place names, I just say, say it with confidence and keep reading. Yeah, anybody else? Distractions. Time. The t- taking the time to do it. We will talk about that tonight. We'll talk about that a little bit too tonight. Okay, so you're in the middle of reading and it's, the issue is staying focused. Okay. Okay. Anybody else? These are good. I, this good. I, we got to be honest about this, right? So section one, preparing to read. So if you've got notes, if you don't, you want to grab some there at the back table. Section one, preparing to read. So there was a guy who, the, the, the author of the book, Nate Picklewicks, he said uh, he was starting a guy's discipleship group. One of the guys kept coming to him after the class and the group and the, when they'd meet, and he said, look, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm reading the Bible, and I am actually reading it. I'm just, I'm struggling to grow spiritually. I'm struggling to be fed by what I'm reading. And so they began to talk about why that might be. They began to talk about some details. Well, come to find out, he found out that this guy was, was squeezing it into the commercial breaks of his baseball game. Not joking. He had the game up. He had the Bible on the coffee table or the desk. And when it was commercial of the baseball game, he would mute the commercials and then try to read. And the guy said, look, you, you need to carve out time where you're mentally just focused on that one thing and, and there's no distractions. You need to get, try to get rid of those. So number one, so preparing to read, section one, preparing to read. I, I think it's, some people might think it's silly to talk about, let's go straight into reading. Why are you telling me preparing to read? Well, it's important, and, and some of the things that y'all brought up, I think it's important, including what you brought up. Okay, so number one, carve out the time. I know we've said that, I, you may have heard that before, but if you're a pen, pen and paper, pencil and paper kind of person, and you keep your calendar on your refrigerator or something like that, put it on there. If you're a smartphone or tablet person, get in here, get on your Things that are really important that I make sure and do are on my actual calendar. Like right now, it says Wednesday night service. It's got a two-hour heads up, two-hour alert. You could set alerts. I use this all the time. I love it. Um, carve out time in, in here. If you have, however you have to do it, uh, this is great where it'll even remind you. Now, I'll talk about this in a second. When you're actually in the middle of doing it, once this has reminded you to do it, um, I put this away while I'm, while I'm doing it. I'll explain a little bit about that later. Um, so carve out the time, not during a show, not during a baseball game on TV or a football game. And really, if we're honest with ourselves, we admit that we do what is most important to us. You do what's most important to you. If something is important to you, you make sure and carve out the time to do it. Your favorite TV show that maybe it comes out once a week and you keep up with it. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but if it's important to you, you, you make sure and do it. Uh, maybe it's your, your news article that you want to keep up with a certain current event, how, what's going on in Ukraine, you know, whatever it is, you keep up with that. Um, do you eat breakfast in the morning? Or if you're not a breakfast person, do you eat lunch every day? Or do you eat dinner every day? Well, that's important to you. Well, you make sure and make the time to do it, right? It's very similar with this. And, and I would say this is even more important than physical eating. This is one of the most important things that we do in our entire lives. Two of your most valuable assets in your life, commodity or asset, is time and money. 
right? And so you can tell what's important to somebody looking at those two assets, looking at their calendar, and looking at their checkbook, or in modern vernacular, their budget, or their bank account, or however you want to say that, whatever you use. So I can look at those two things. I can look at my bank account, I can look at my calendar, I can look and see how I use these two things, and you'll be able to tell, if you were to look at that, you'd be able to tell an awful lot about where my priorities are. Now look, distractions come up, right? Nobody's ignoring that. But distractions aside, those happen to all of us. Those happen to the best of us. What am I carving out time to do? Because I make time for what's most important. So there are distractions, but you can still make time to read God's word. So what's the best time? Some people will say I should do prepare to read in the morning. I think there's something to that. I'm not going to throw that out. But it also depends on your schedule, depends on your lifestyle. Some people, I know some people, if if you would rigidly say it's got to be in the morning, first thing when I get up. I, I know some people that are just not morning people. Their brain's not awake yet. They're not they're just not going to absorb it as well. They perform better. You know, you know when you hit your peak during the day. So maybe, whether that's lunchtime, right after lunchtime, right before, when you first get up, right before you go to bed, for my aunt, gosh, it's, uh, it's anywhere between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. And she will text, of course, my phone's on silent, so it doesn't wake me up, but she'll text me at 1 a.m., and oh, I just thought about this, and she's going through this box in her guest room. Do, do you want anything out of this? You know, and uh, No, I'm good, but <laughs> that's, her, that's her prime time. That's when she is, gets the most done. Some, for me, I'm dead asleep at 2 a.m. I'm, I'm in bed by 10 reading, so call me old if you want. I don't know, but anyway, um, I just I need that. I need sleep. So, yeah, what's the best time? Depends on your schedule. When you look at Jesus in the Gospels, so let's take his prayer life, for example. When you look at Jesus in the Gospels, when did he pray? There was no set time. He prayed all the time. He might pray in the morning. So before he picks his 12 guys, he prays all night. Before he walks out onto the water to his 12 guys, and it freaks them out because they think it's a ghost and in the middle of the night, and he was going to keep on walking, but they call out to him. Uh, he was praying before that. So sometimes he prays all night. Sometimes it's a quick prayer because it's, it's in the moment that he needs it. So his, hear me all the way through. His prayer life was needs-driven, not rule-driven. Here's what I mean. Now, wait a second. Are you telling me my prayer life and my Bible study, we're using these synonymously, that they have a lot of common similarities, right? Are you saying my prayer life and my Bible study should be me-driven, needs. It's all about my needs. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying when I say needs-driven. Um, but with Jesus, you do see that his prayer life was need-driven, not rule-driven. In other words, he didn't wake up and, well, the Sabbath, he did honor the Sabbath. But he didn't wake up and he said, all right, it's 6 a.m. Guys, come on, it's 6. We gotta... He prayed all different times throughout the Gospels. You see different times. You don't see any rigid, okay, it's 6, I have to do this. Now, you think, well, wait, if it's needs-based and not rule-based, how is that not based on me? How is that glorifying to God? How is that aimed at God? It's aimed at God because when you realize the depth of your need for him as a Christian, you need him all the time, every day. So if your prayer life, same thing with your Bible study, is needs-driven and not rule-driven, there's a relational aspect there that might not be there if it's rule-driven. If I'm just doing it to check it off a list, y'all following me? And I realize the depth of my need and it's all the time. So it is pointed at God. I am doing it all the time. And, it, and it's pointed at God because I realize I need your help. 
I need your instruction. I need you to talk to me. I need you to, I can't live my life without that. So prayer, and what's the same thing with Bible study? I have to have this. If I don't, I, you, you feel it. You, you very quickly start to feel it. Start to notice a difference or start to notice something's off. So what's the best time? I'm not going to give you a time. Uh, some people, it's morning. Some people, I would say when your prime, however God designed and wired your brain, whatever your prime time is during the day, however long you're up, 14, 16, 18, however many hours, maybe have it be sometime in that. My prime time, man, I hit my stride right after lunch. Okay, carve out, if you're able to, carve out 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is. Shorten your lunch break and the last half of the lunch break, you're, you're in God's word. I, I don't know. My point is there's more than one way to skin that cat. So Jesus didn't, um, oh, I already said that. Jesus didn't have a set time to pray. Prayer life was need-driven, but realizing the depth of his need to hear from the Father, it was always, it's all the time. But you do need to make time somewhere in your schedule. So that's number one, carve out the time. Number two, find a quiet place. Find a quiet place. And this hits a little bit at what, I think it was Paul or somebody back there mentioned, distractions. Although that's really number three, but this helps too. Find a quiet place. Could be at home, could be at work. It could be, maybe it's neither. At work, you get bombarded. Okay, fine. Maybe home. Well, no, that doesn't work either. At home, I get bombarded, okay? Maybe it's a coffee shop. Uh, Higher Grounds does not have very, very long uh, open hours, far into the night and things like that, but whatever that coffee shop by the hospital, Higher Grounds, whatever hours it does have, that's a great place to meet. In fact, they have a couple rooms in the back by the restroom uh, for that you can reserve or rope off that time if you need to, to to get alone or to have a small group or something like that back there. So... Find a coffee shop, a library. I mean, you're supposed to read at a library, right? So you could read the Bible. Why not read the Bible? If you have kids at home, make it clear that this is important for you to do. Look, mommy and daddy need to read God's word. Here's the time that we do that. This is important. Now, look, that's going to be age appropriate, okay? Two years old, you can't explain that fully to a two-year-old. I get that. So two years old is going to look very different from five years old. Five-year-old, you can a little bit better explain that and they can start to grasp it. When they're two, they're probably not going to at all unless they're just a saint and an angel. I've only known one. I had this family that was, uh, they actually were here for a little while, but they were, um, they went to my last church for a while uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and they had a daughter and she was, I mean, I knew her since she she could walk and she was, I swear, she was an angel. And even her parents said, yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, you're not just saying that. So when she was two, they could probably tell her, hey, leave mommy and daddy alone for 30 minutes because we need to read God's word. And she would have done it. Most two-year-olds, not going to do that. If you're married with children, enlist your spouse to help if needed. So especially if, if okay, I fall within or I know someone. They fall within that two or below category, three or below, four or below. And they're just not going to do that. Okay, that's understandable. So maybe you switch off days. You get some reading in, but really your intense reading is maybe every other day that the husband stays with the kids so that the wife can go to the coffee shop or wherever she likes to go. Then the next day they switch places. So you could be creative how you do this, and it's just important that you do. So that's it. Number three, remove distractions. And uh, somebody threw out distractions. That's a super common issue. Um, Not with the TV on. 
not in a setting where you might be easily distracted. And you know how you get distracted. So figure out what that is, what that looks like for you. But it is. It's extremely easy to get distracted. I think that's always been true for us, but especially in the digital age, that's way more true, exponentially more true. You know, with cell phones and iPads, I mean, it's, think about how much it does and how often I tend to go toward it. Now, I have it up here usually just to check what time, because I'm going to try to let you all out by 7.30ish, right? But, you know, land the plane at some point tonight. But, yeah, it's so easy to look at that and say, oh, man, cell phones, iPads, uh, technology can be helpful, but it also allows the brain to chase almost any, any mental rabbit that it wants to, like driving while looking at a phone. Um, I mean, I will see people driving through the intersection, through an intersection like this, or the best is I'm at Neely where it dead ends into Big Spring, taking a left at the light. Well, you wait for a while there sometimes, which is fine sitting there at the light, and I'll see people turn right, going south on Big Spring, turn right on Neely, and they're, they don't even look up, and they're mid-turn, they're in their turn, and they're just right here. So it's, if you let it, it's an extremely addictive device. That's why they have apps now included in, and even wired in, I think, to the iPhone's got them wired in, I don't use it, but um, that tells you how much time you've been on a particular thing, just so you can keep track of it, so that you can set limits you can easily get out of control. So look at all the things you can do on your phone. Look, you can read the Bible on your phone. We're talking about reading the Bible. You can read your Bible on your phone. But because of the neural pathways connected to what your phone does, so that's email. Think about this. Email, text, phone calls, other reminders. Y'all are like, what's email? Email, text, phone calls, other reminders, uh, calendar reminders, alerts, things like that. Facebook, Instagram, Photos, web browser, shopping, and if you have some of these apps designed to push or notify notifications on, it's, it's, it's even worse. Uh, shopping, weather, driving conditions, podcasts, I do check that before I drive home, podcasts, notes app, music, work tasks, games, banking, stocks, oil index, calculator, and the list goes on. So think about all those things. You've established neural, well, there's nothing wrong with this necessarily. I've established neural pathways in my brain that connects that task to this device. So, so because of that, I would use an actual printed copy or a digital reader that only does that one function when I'm reading the Bible. I'm old school and I like to use this and write it up and mark it up and highlight it and stuff like that. I mean, you do what you want, but I'm just saying, I, I really, I'm not against reading it on your phone. I'm not, but I really have a strong preference and would advise you toward a physical Bible or something, if it is digital, that that's all that, that it does so that you're not, so that this thing doesn't pop up and you go, oh, your friend just posted something on Instagram or you got a text or you got an email and you think, oh, I needed to email that person back for work or whatever it is. And I, I know, I mean, I, we all tend to do it if we're not careful, so um, yeah, just like when I'm home and I need some family time, this is on silent. By the way, if it's on vibrate, that's not silent. Okay, everybody, does everybody realize? I think a lot of people don't realize that. Okay, so I have my not to vibrate when it's on silent. So I put it on silent. I put it on my nightstand by my bed, and our bedroom door stays closed. And 
and I'm, and I'm during family time, I'm with family. Now, I'm going to check it before I go to bed. So if someone ne- really needs something, I'm not unreachable. I want to be reachable, but I'm not immediately reachable. Uh, I'm not. So, so have that same attitude with your, um, with your reading. I'm going to set this aside. I'm going to put it on silent, not vibrate. I'm going to just... Uh, number four, number three, remove distractions. Number four, uh, so yeah, if you're looking what I do, I don't ever read my Bible from my phone. I don't even have a Bible phone app, honestly. I don't, I don't do it. Uh, sometimes when Pastor Jeff's preaching and I go, ooh, what was that word? I'll pull up Bible web app interlinear to look up, to click on what the actual word is real quick, and then I'll put it back. But that's, I usually don't even do that. But I don't read my Bible from my phone. That's just me. Uh, turn it on silent, not to vibrate. Number four, choose a translation. The translation arguments. Okay, here we go. You ready? Number four, choose a translation. We're preparing to read, right? So you need to choose a translation. You might just go with whatever your father or mother gave you, something you inherited. you're, You're already doing that. There's KJV, that's King James. There's NKJV, that's New King James. By the way, let me just hit the pause button. What we call King James is new, 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 new King James already. Okay, no one can read the 1611 version. If you tell me you can, I want you to show me because I don't believe you. Um, Okay, so you have King James, you have New King James, you have ESV, that's English Standard Version, ESV. You have NASB, that's New American Standard. That's probably the most, in my opinion, one of the most accurate word for word. You have CSB, Christian Standard Bible. You have a newer one that's pretty solid called the NET, the N-E-T, the New English Translation. So those are just six options. That's the first category. So, okay, choose my translation. There's, there's a couple of categories, two main categories. One is word for word, and those are the ones I just listed. Word for word. The translation team and scholars that worked on this translation went back to the Hebrew and the Greek, and the manuscript copies we have, the manuscript evidence, we don't have any of the originals, but we're 99.9% confidence, like I talked about last week, of what the originals are because of all the different manuscripts that we do have. So they go back to the Hebrew, back to, there's a little bit of Aramaic sprinkled in, but it's mostly Hebrew and Greek. They go back to that, and these word-for-word guys say, okay, what's the best way in today's vocabulary to to give this idea and stay as true as we possibly can word-for-word to the text? So that's ESV, the King James, the New King James, the, the NET, and Bibles like that. Then there's this second section, and it is thought for thought. So what these translators try to do is they say, okay, they go back to the same manuscripts, Hebrew, Greek. Then they say, okay, in today's English, what's the best way to describe this? Not so much literally word for word, but thought for thought. We're going to add a few extra words that we, that we know Hopefully the reader knows, although sometimes they don't. They should. We're going to add a few words that we know are not in the original Hebrew and Greek, but we're adding them f- to fill in the picture of what the style of the language is doing. What's going on? Did the guy go to the store, or did he skip to the store? Those are two different... Well, either way, he went to the store. So they're, they're adding context words that aren't in the original to give you the thought. And some of them come pretty close not one of them does a great job with every passage, in my opinion. Not one of them. But um, to read devotionally from time to time, 
These are okay, but I wouldn't do all your reading in these, in this second category. So this would be the NIV, the NLT. The NLT is the New Living Translation. I have a Wearsby of the New Living Translation that I love, and I sometimes use devotionally. I would never teach out of it, and I'm not going to read most of my reading out of it. But uh, Wearsby's got some great notes in there. Warren Wearsby. If y'all don't know who that is, you should. Uh, Number three, this is not a translation. This is kind of an artificial category. Not a translation. Number three is paraphrase. Paraphrastic. Paraphrases of the Bible. And a lot of people get upset at paraphrases because they lump them in their minds. They categorize them with translations, and they should not be. That would be, for example, J.B. Phillips, really good. The New Testament in Modern English, J.B. Phillips, The New Testament in Modern English. I've got one copy on my, on my uh, uh, bookshelf. It's a paraphrase. He never intended it to be a translation. He would say, don't use this as a translation. Don't read out of it primarily. Don't, certainly don't teach out of it. Just it's, it's, it's my paraphrase as a theologian of, of what's going on. The second one is, I'm about to say this, The Message, Eugene Peterson. I don't ever think Peterson intended for bookstore. I, I don't know. I should ask him one day. I don't know if he intended for bookstores to put that in the translation section. It does not belong in the translation section. People, they put it there so people think it's a translation, and they look at it and they go, this is terrible. As a translation, yes, it is. You're right. It's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. It is a, almost like a commentary. I think if I owned a bookstore, I would, put the me- I would sell the message, but i put it in the commentary section. It's not a translation. It should not be viewed as a translation. I should not read it mostly. I should not teach out of it. I agree with all that. But do you see what I'm saying? I think a lot of people critique the message because they categorize it wrongly. They say, oh, this is a translation. No, it's not. It's a paraphrase. It's a very loose, and I don't think, I need to ask him to be sure, but I don't think, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I don't think Peterson, who's, as far as I know, a pretty solid guy, the guy that did it, would would say, yes, this is a translation, and I want you to teach out of it. I don't think he would ever do that. Uh, the Mardell Bible Wall, if y'all have never been there, and you're looking for a good translation to use, hello, it is fantastic. Anytime I'm discipling a guy, I say, look, if you have a good copy of God's Word or a good study Bible, if he says anything other than an immediate yes, I have something I love, I say, all right, meet me next time we meet. We're not going to go through our content. We're going to go meet at Mardell. And I'm going to take you to the Bible wall. Our next meeting is going to be at Mardell. We'll walk to the Bible wall, and we'll take out a few, and we'll pull them down. on the. And you can look at them. They'll help you. You can look at them. And so um, different Bible options. Here's three, and then we'll look at the other few. I've got lots. But um, this one, the NET, this is going to be a more word-for-word word literal, not a thought-for-thought. Thought. This is more word-for-word. Word. The NET, New English Translation, this one is their full notes edition on the different manuscripts, the different variants. It is awesome. So just to give you an idea, here's the text of Scripture in this box, and here's all the notes around it. It's more notes. It's percentage of the page. It's more notes than it is Scripture. It has got this manuscript has this and this verb tense, and here's why we chose this translational choice. Translation notes, it's second to none. Uh, That's the NET Full Notes Edition Study Bible. Um, That's a probably the newest translation that I know of. This one's the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. Uh, Holman did this. So um, the new one is better than the old one. It still needs some improvement, but it's much better than the old one. Um, I almost wouldn't recommend the old one, but this one's pretty good. 
uh, they redid it. They reworked it a few years ago. So that's Holman Christian Standard Bible, the new one. This is a cool one. It's called the Ancient Faith Study Bible, and I'm a Bible junkie. And it's got theological notes from all these old school guys, Tertullian, Origen, some of the early church fathers. It's really cool. And then I also use this a lot. This is the ESV, English Standard Version. So again, word for word. And this is uh, the ESV Study Bible. Great archaeological notes, great historical notes, great theological notes. I don't agree with them on every little bitty thing, but this is a solid reference work. I love it. I use it all the time. Um, Here's a few more options I'll throw at you. I'm giving you all, except for my Wearsby that I brought up with the NLT, I'm I'm giving you all um, word-for-word examples. This is the Founder's Bible. This is, what is this? New American Standard, NASB, the Founder's Bible. If y'all have heard of David Barton and Tim Barton, wall builders, out of uh, Alito, Texas, this is their work with another guy. And it is excellent. So if you want to go into uh, our nation's history, our founders particularly, what they thought about different passages, how passages affected them. When Ben Franklin gets up in the middle of the Constitutional Convention, which was this far from falling apart, uh, we, didn't, we couldn't agree on anything. All the states were coming together, couldn't agree on anything. I mean, Pennsylvania would say one thing, and New York would say, that's stupid. And Anyway, Ben Franklin stood up and called them to prayer, to, to get on the same page, to be in unity on making this thing called the Constitution. And when he did that, he referenced over a dozen Bible verses, just off the cuff. I mean, he just knew them. He's spitting them out. And so it'll, <coughs> it'll, as you're walking through different scriptures, it'll tell you about this scripture was used by Ben Franklin to defend this constitutional point. Here's how we came up with, you know, Article 2, Section 3, or, or whatever. And, and it's got the reference to... To the Bible. So that's a cool study version. I'm slowly working my way. See that? My marker there just started. I'm slowly working my way through this. It's kind of one of my next projects. Um, the notes in there. So you've got what? The Founder's Bible, NASB, Founder's Bible. Uh, this is a little thin line. I love these small ones. New King James, and it's just got reference notes. It doesn't even have any study thing. So New King James. Um, and that's the main one I teach out of. Oh, I should mention the one I'm teaching out of. Ryrie, if anybody doesn't know Ryrie, you need to be acquainted with Ryrie. He's got an NASB study Bible with his study notes. Fantastic resource. Um, and again, I, I think the NET or the NASB is probably uh, one of the most accurate word for word. The one I use is, some of you are going to throw stuff at me, but that's all right. The one I use is Jack Hayford, Spirit-Filled Life. I love it. It comes in NLT, but that's not my favorite. It's an okay one. Um, it comes in, it, the one I use right now, this is New King James. So that's Jack Hayford, Spirit-Filled Life. Got a lot of great pneumatology and things like that. Got some pretty interesting study notes in here. Again, I don't agree 100% with, with you know, you read a study note sometimes. You don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You may say, well, I'm not so sure about that. That's okay. Be exposed to the information. Go back, always take it back to God's word and say, what does God's word say? So that's it. A lot of great options for you. Number four, choose a translation. Number five, pray before you read. Some of us don't, I don't know if I should ask for a show of hands. But do you realize, I mean, some of us, 
we read and then we think, oh, I never prayed before. I never prayed after I read at all. And sometimes we wonder why we're not understanding something. I think prayer is crucial. It centers us back on God. I would pray before I read and after. Bow your head, quiet your mind, ask the Holy Spirit of God for understanding. For example, if you just look, I know we're not scripture heavy tonight, we will be in the next two weeks, but look at Hebrews 11.6, just as a reference point, Hebrews 11.6. So you go New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Some people call this the hall of faith. By faith, these men obeyed and pleased God and followed God. So Hebrews 11, verse 6 is an interesting little deal here regarding not just Bible study, but then prayer before Bible study, during, after. Um, Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him, talking about God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, so hey, he's there, I'm actually talking to someone, I'm not just talking to the ceiling, and that he, so he's there, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So he rewards our diligence in seeking him. So if I come to him in prayer before, uh, he loves that. If I come to him in prayer before, I'm going to read his word. Lord, help me understand what I'm about to read. Help me nail it down in my life. Help me apply it. After you've read If something jumped off the page at you that you've read before, but maybe you didn't quite see the connection, the biblical biblical connection, after you read, (coughs) excuse me, uh, pray that God will help you grasp something that maybe you need to look at again, and that he will show you and give you the desire to obey what it says or apply it. So look, I, I think we need the Holy Spirit of God's direction, not just to understand what this says, but also to... Uh, properly know how to apply it in our lives, and to have the desire to. I, don't, I think we naturally drift away God in our, in our flesh, not toward him. And so with the Spirit, one of the Holy Spirit's job in our lives, if we're saved, he's in us. We're the temple of God. Remember Paul says in Corinthians, uh, do you not know that you are the temple of God, that you were bought with a price? Your body doesn't belong to you. If you trust your Christ, it belongs to him. So he places his spirit in you. One of the spirit's jobs is to pull you back to him, that your flesh goes away. Paul talks all about this in Corinthians. Your flesh goes away, the natural man goes away, but the spirit draws you back, pulls you back. So one of the things I'm gonna pray to, God's, to God for, for help, is not just for understanding, not just for application, but also for the desire. I mean, honestly, there's some days I wake up and I, you just think, I don't want to do this or that or that or tell that person or apologize or whatever it is or pray about this. I don't want to. And one of the things that prayer helps me do is it, it, the Holy Spirit steps in and helps give me the desire to actually do that. Why do I go to church? To check it off a list? It's still good that you're at church, don't get me wrong, but that's the wrong reason to go. I, I go to church because the Spirit puts that desire in me and I crave it. I want to do it. I want a fellowship with y'all. I, I want that. Um, so, so that's it. That's part of what he does too. So I'm going to pray and ask him for those things. Even after I've read it, I'm going to pray. So section two, section one's preparing to read. Section two is actually reading. So let's jump into this for a little bit for tonight. Section two, reading. Okay, we've talked, we've danced all around the issue. Now let's look at reading. The 
author of this book, I love this quote. He says, at the heart of Bible reading is the question, what does it say? He says, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. So when I, I, I need to read with an approach and an attitude of what does it say? Now, we'll talk about what does it mean in application next time, but what does it say? So you could read through an entire book of the Bible. I would even usually recommend that unless you're doing a topical study. If God has you in a season of life where you're looking at a particular issue, anxiety, fear, um, whatever it is, this doctrine, this teaching of scripture, you know, what is the church? What's the church's role? What, why should I be involved in church? What's the church look like? What's the definition of the church? How do I serve and function in the local church? You may be doing a topical study, and if you're doing that, you are going to be jumping around. Grab a good concordance, Strong's concordance. There's, they're free online too. And search everywhere the word ecclesia appears if you're doing a study on church or anything related to that. He says, where there are two or more of you are gathered in my name, what does he say? I am there in the midst of them. I'm there with you. So that would be involved in this, in this idea called his church. So if you're doing a topical study, yes, you're going to jump around. That's going to be normal, natural. That's part of how you should do that. <clears throat> but if you're not doing a topical study, I would read through an entire book of the Bible as opposed to skipping around. Now, here's why. A few reasons. First off, it'll make it easier to stay in the context of what's being said. It's a lot easier to stay in the context instead of switching. If, you sw- if you're jumping books, jump to jump to jump to jump to jump, you're skipping in, from different authors, different audiences, different situations in the middle of one thought versus another thought, and you, you may not grab the, understand the context where you're in. For example, the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry. You all ever heard that phrase? Did you know it appears more than one time in Scripture? Either that exact phrase or very close appears more than one time in Scripture. Eat, drink, and be merry has a different application, for example, in Ecclesiastes 8, where it's used positively. (coughs) Then it does, don't take my word for it, go look it up, Ecclesiastes 8, it's used positively. Then it does in Isaiah 22, Luke 12, or 1 Corinthians 15, where it's all used negatively. Some people quote it, and they're quoting from, well, which one are you referencing? Well, usually they're referencing one of the other three, and you say, well, typically that's used in a bad light, not something you want to do, something you don't want to do. That's an attitude it's arguing against. So just be aware of that. It's harder to grab context, though, sometimes. Somebody say something? Okay. No, I thought somebody had something. Okay. Eat, drink, and be merry. So this also, number two, it also will help you not skip some of the hidden gems of Scripture that often get overlooked or avoided. For example, if you don't read through all of John, you're probably never going to do a topical study. I don't know anyone who's ever done this or a sermon series just on John 6. If you don't read John 6, you miss the point that Jesus thinks we should follow him. In that chapter, he's talking to mostly a Jewish audience who blood is extremely offensive to them. And he's being intentionally offensive. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, at first they think he's talking about cannibalism. Of course he's not. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. But if you left him, and in John 6, verse 66, maybe there's something to that number. No, uh, it says a lot of people left, huge crowds of people left him and quit following him after that. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, and you have no part in me. 
sounds like he's talking about cannibalism. Blood's extremely offensive. So if you don't read John 6, you miss the point that Jesus thinks we should follow him no matter how crazy something he tells us might sound at first. Well, that sounds insane. Are you saying cannibalism and blood drinking? The demonic cults do that. No, but just stick with me. He even tells Peter after that, he says, you're going to leave? Peter said, where would we go? We, you're the only one we know to follow. Later, what do they find out? They're sitting at the Last Supper. He holds out his hand. He says, take, eat. He gives him the bread, doesn't he? What does he say? This is my body. Ah, light bulb comes on. What else does he do? We think it's the third cup out of four, but uh, the third cup, the cup of blessing during the Last Supper. Uh, today, if you have a Seder meal, it's you know, very similar to what they did. He says, take, drink. What does he say? This is my blood, which is shed for you. Okay, and the light bulb comes on. Jesus, what you said back in John 6 sounded crazy, but we didn't leave. I know it sounded crazy. We stuck with you. We know you're God. We trust your God. We trust you're the Messiah. And then later we found out, oh, he was, ooh, he was talking about the Lord's Supper. He was not literally talking about cannibalism. Well, of course he wasn't. But if you, if you don't read John 6, you miss that. You know, let me give you another example of a hidden gem. If you skip numbers, who in the world, I've never met anybody that said, you know, my favorite book of the Bible is Numbers or Leviticus. If you skip Numbers, you'll miss chapter 2, where God wants his people, and he says, very specifically, how to camp around his presence in the tabernacle in a very specific way, and how that, for lack of a better word, interdimensionally connects to his actual throne in heaven. <clears throat> and the rep- not like Stargate, but you know, almost. And the repetition of this throne room in Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, Revelation 21, where it all lines up, where the four living creatures are around the throne, they perfectly match on just the right sides the emblems of the 12 tribes, the head, the four heads of the 12 of the sections that were camped around him, close to him. It all matches, it all lines up. It's an earthly model of what's going on up there with the four living creatures. You miss that if you skip numbers, passages like Numbers 2. You miss stuff like that. Numbers isn't boring. Sometimes you just have to dig. Some of the boring books need more digging, right? They look boring on the surface, but they, those are the ones that just need more digging. And those are some of the ones when you dig that you actually find more hidden jewels, more hidden gems, where you go, wow, I didn't see that. If you take that, Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, Revelation 21, Numbers 2, if you take all those passages and you link them together, what you find is amazing. And so you see God's truth and his timelessness and his perfect design and plan for us threaded throughout all the Bible. He'll put it here. He'll put a little bit of it there. He'll put it there. He'll put it there. He'll put it there. So he does that. Uh, We have visited Galveston Island. Now we kind of do it for a Memorial Day deal with our immediate family, wife and kids. Sometimes my folks come because they live in Tomball. It's just the other side of Houston, which is where I grew up. So, And growing up, so we'd go to Galveston a lot. Look, I know Galveston is not the most glamorous beach, beach in the world, okay? Florida has better beaches, yes, but it's close, and it's Texas, and I love it. And I've gotten on a lot of cruise boats out of Galveston. I love Galveston Island. Um, the more I learn about it, the more I love it. Fisherman's Wharf, you can go eat at Fisherman's Wharf. A lot of people will tell you to go eat there. Well, that's more of a touristy spot. It's a gym. They've got great food, but it's not that hard to find or find out about Fisherman's Wharf. But also, there's these other places that are great. 
that you may not know about until you dig a little bit, right? Like Gumbo Diner. <clears throat> and even the World War II gun emplacements by the San Luis Resort right under their swimming pool. There's the entrance to one of the old gun emplacements from World War II. You wouldn't, German U-boats were in the Gulf back then. You wouldn't know that. That's not a typical touristy spot. There's no tourist spot there. They, put, they stuck a swimming pool above it of the San Louis uh, that Tillman Fertitta owns. If you don't know who that is, I think he owns the Houston Rockets, or at least he used to maybe. With, and it even has an underground rail to carry ammo running all the way down the seawall to the East Beach area to the end. Um, almost by where the ferries are, but south of there, <coughs> where there's another abandoned military fort. So even Davy Crockett, the fort right there by San Luis Resort, used to be a World War II fort there, named after Davy Crockett, Fort Crockett. And there's some remains. There's a couple barracks buildings that are still up and being used. There's the old post office on the military fort that's still being used. But you wouldn't know that. See, you wouldn't find those hidden gems unless you dug a little bit, unless you spent some time there and asked around. If you don't spend time there, you only visit the tourist spots, then you miss some of the more interesting places on the island. We can do the same thing with the Bible if we're not careful to read all of it. That's my point. We just visit John 3. We just hit the main tourist spots, right? And sometimes that's really not the best food, restaurant-wise. You know that. We, we miss, um, people tell us to go to Texas Burger. Texas Burger's great. People tell you to go to Texas Burger, and they don't tell you about Bob's Better Burger, where the grease runs down your arm, and it's so good. But if you only pass through Midland and you don't ask around, you don't know about Bob's Better Burger, or even better, Food Truck Alley. That's right behind it. It's amazing. Um, We can do the same thing with the Bible. We can visit John 3, Philippians 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, Ephesians 6, Genesis 1. We just hit the main tourist stops. And we miss so many things that God wants to tell us, like Numbers 2, like John 6. So we read the entire book of the Bible, whatever the letter or book that you're in. I would read it through. We'll talk about a reading plan that you might want to use later in the series, but just to to whet your appetite for it, it's not reading through in a year. It's actually a longer period than that. But it's when you're done with it, you've read through a book or a letter many, 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 many times that particular letter before moving on to the next. So you're well acquainted. It's almost like you have to say goodbye to an old friend because you're, you're so well acquainted with that book. Let's say Philippians. You've read Philippians 30 times and then you're going on to a different New Testament book but you've read through it again and again and again and you, can, you don't have the whole thing memorized maybe but you can rattle off. You know where stuff is in Philippians. You say, okay, I don't know numbers still but I've got Philippians down. That's a little bit more of what this author, he, he, takes, he takes John MacArthur's reading plan and he, he twists it a little bit to where you get more repetition in the books. That's basically what he does. And it, it's not a bad idea. Um, where am I? Okay, the first goal of reading is understanding. That's important to bring up because sometimes we read and then we want to go straight to application. What does it say? Okay, how do I apply it? That's okay if you don't have that much time to dig or if you're in a small group setting where you only have 10 minutes, but I want you to make it a practice of, I want to read, and we'll talk about this next week, I want to read with the goal of understanding. What does it say, and not just what does it say, what does it mean by what it says? And we'll look a little bit more at that next time. But the first goal of reading is understanding, that we just jump to application, but that understanding process really helps before we step to the next step of application. We understand by observation. That's one of the ways we understand. 
For example, I can look at names. Who wrote the letter? Who's the letter written to? What characters are in the text? For example, if I don't understand that Hebrews chapter 6 is written to believers, <clears throat> I'm horrified when I read the first part of the chapter. Because it's Hebrews, the first part of the chapter 6 seems to, seems to say, it does not. It seems to say that a believer can lose their salvation. That they can, if they walk away, they can never be renewed again to repentance. My, that passage haunted my sister for years until we actually dug into it and, and, and looked at it and got to explain some things. But when you understand that the audience is Christians, you say, wait a second, and you keep reading, you don't stop there. You look at uh, verse 9, Hebrews 6, verse 9. You get to verse 9, he says, but beloved, beloved's a phrase that's used consistently for believers, but beloved, I'm confident of better things for you, things that accompany salvation. Then you, light bulb comes on, you go, oh, the other guy he was just talking about wasn't saved at all, ever. He, he got really close. He went to church. He participated. He got to enjoy the fellowship that was part of the, comes from the Holy Spirit. But he tasted God's good word. He never ate it. He never swallowed. He never. So, yeah, it's impossible to renew him to repentance. But verse 9, but believers, I'm confident of better things. So that's it. You're observing the passage. Things like that are going to start to jump out. Things like places, where does it take place? <clears throat> when Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, we read that and we just keep on going. Well, stop, look up Caesarea Philippi. Where is that? Well, if you start to dig in that location, what you learn is that was a pagan worship site with pagan temples. Why would Jesus bring his guys to Demon Central, Demon Activity Central, where they worship Zeus and these other gods, to ask him who he is? Well, first off, these people are confused about it. They don't know who he is. What does Peter say when he asks him that? They're at Caesarea Philippi. What does Peter say? You're the Christ, doesn't he? He said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, yep, you didn't figure that out on your own. The Father showed you that, and I'll build my church on that position. But here's what he says. On this rock, I will build my church. Well, there's a huge rock face behind him, and then on the other side of him is a, a cave entrance. The, the Greeks believed it was the entrance to the underworld, to Hades. If you went deep enough, you could get to Hades there, from, from there. <clears throat> they would even offer sacrifice. It's the headwaters of the Jordan River. So they would even offer sacrifices in that, and they knew the, demon, the demons, the gods, answered their prayer if the blood came through in the waters. If it didn't, the answer was no. <laughs> so they, this was pagan 101, pagan central. Jesus took them to the spot, so he said, on this rock, I'll build my church, huge rock face over there, then right over here, and the gates of hell, which they believe this was the entrance to the underworld, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Okay, so when you start to look up the site, you go, oh, he's using it as an object lesson to teach them a little bit about what his church is going to look like. Look for key words. What does death mean? It's not a ceasing to exist. What does it mean? It's a separation. Look for key words. Do a word study. What does baptism mean? One of the words in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that's never translated. It's always transliterated. Well, if I translate it, <clears throat> none of those translate it. Uh, if I translate it, I, have, I would have to write the word dip or immerse. <laughs> so, not sprinkle. That is actually a different word in the Greek, rontizmon. So I can rontizo something or I can baptizo something. Lydia, who worked in purple, was it, which church was it? Philippi? Lydia, who dealt in purple, if she would have sprinkled it, they wouldn't have bought it. It would have looked like tie-dye or something. What did she do? She, the language of that day, she baptizoed it to dye the whole garment purple. That's how it's sold. You baptizoed it. So that's it. Just look for stuff like that. Repeated words. Look for repeated words. 
Like if you read the book of Jonah, it says he's fleeing from the Lord, right? God calls him to go preach to his national enemies who he hates. He's not going to do it. What does he do? What does Jonah do? Runs the other way. Go back and read the story. What it says is he goes down. He goes down. This is just repetition of the word down. He goes down. When he's running away, he's not going up. When you're running away from God, you're only going down. He goes down. He goes down, into, and then he gets down into the boat, and then he goes down into the depths of the boat and goes to sleep or whatever happens. But it's, it's this look for repetition. Something's being repeated. The author's typically making a point there, right? When you talk to your, if you have a child, when you talk to your child and you repeat something 10 times, you want them to know that 50 times. You want them to know that thing. Same thing with Scripture. Uh, we understand by meditation. So we understand by meditation, understanding. We understand by um, observation. Sorry. We understand by observation. That's the same word. We understand by meditation. Here's what the author says. Meditation is the act of mental chewing. That's all it is. So New Age says that meditation is emptying my mind, getting a certain verbal or musical frequency playing, a certain hertz level, to attract the spirits and to get my chi in the right spot. And then any spiritual source that wants to come in and talk to me and move me can, can do that. I'm opening myself up to the spirit world. It's extremely dangerous. Stupid idea. Because guess what? There's stuff there. And you're opening yourself up to that. I, one of my good friends, I grew up in... Um, I grew up in Tomball Bible Church. He grew up in Plano Bible Church, but my aunt lives in Plano. So growing up, I, grew, I had friends in her church. So this guy grew up solid family. They pointed him in the right direction. But he got into some drugs and some other things and got off into this stuff. And now he worships, uh, I don't know. Not God. <laughs> All the, the pantheon of, of the... Uh, Krishna and all those. It's, Biblical meditation is very different from that. Biblical meditation is not emptying my mind at all. It's, filling, it's clearing my mind, but it's filling my mind with particular content. It's filling my mind with God's word, what God thinks, what God says. What, that's what meditation is. He calls it um, the act of mental chewing. Love that. So take the verse, the passage, the book, the letter. Again, if you do his reading plan, you're reading it through many, many times. And throughout the week, think about it. Chew on it. What does that mean? What does this phrase mean? I don't understand this phrase. Chew on it. Uh, Last, we understand by memorization. If you're a Bible memorization um, fiend, keep after it. That's good. I think that's a good thing. Um, If you're not, I think reading through a letter many, many, many times, even if you don't have word for word memorized per se, you, you have a very good flavor of what that book says, what that verse says, what that passage says. That's a great way to to help you memorize. You're establishing, look, I'll say this, the only reason I know anything about this, I'm not saying I do, but the only reason what I do know that I I know is because I've gone through these letters and I've just, that's all, it's not complicated. I've just read through them and read through them and read through them and studied them and studied them and listened to this guy preach on this text and listened to that guy preach on this text and listened and go, well, maybe that's, well, ooh, that's good. That's a good point. And just go through it over in the letter, over and over. I've I've studied through Mark multiple times. I've studied through Ephesians so many times I lost count. I've studied through um, Joshua a few different times and just go through it many different times. Now, there's a few books 
that I don't know as well as other books, but I just one at a time. And okay, I've got this book down, now go to the next one, now go to the next one. I mean, look, I graduated, I grew up in a Bible church, I grew up in Awana. This was not their fault. This is my fault. <clears throat> when I graduated high school, I, pff, I knew John 3.16, but I couldn't tell you half the Bible characters second graders in our church can. Now, I'm not exaggerating. I couldn't. I didn't know who they were. I got Noah and uh, Moses mixed up. I got, I didn't. So, so it's not, <clears throat> my point is it came through just reading the letter over and over again and just studying it doing a word study, looking at this, taking advantage of the free online tools where you can click on a word and you can see every time that word appears in the Bible and then go look it up and see how, okay, God uses this word this way. You know, that's it. That's it. Um, I got kind of a kickstart in seminary, I guess, but that's it. Okay, homework. We'll look at plenty of application at the end of this series over the next couple weeks, but here's your homework. Carve out the time. Carve out the time. However you need to do that. Find a quiet place, however you need to do that. If you're in a crazy period of life right now with young, with young kids, um, even if that's every other day because you're switching off with your spouse. Okay, find a quiet place. Remove distractions. <clears throat> Choose a translation. Pre- we typically teach out of the New King James here. I think Pastor Robert also reads a lot out of the ESV just another great one. Um, where am I? Pray. Choose a translation. Pray. And then read. <laughs> I, t- I can't just sit there and prepare. I have to actually sit down and read. Read. We'll talk a little bit about and some of the stuff you brought up with focusing when I'm in the middle of reading. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. Um, read God's word. Read it alone. Read it with a friend. Read it with your spouse if you're married. If you're not, grab a friend. Read it with them. Make it your goal not just to read the Bible, but to understand it. I observe, I meditate, I memorize, I do all those things. If I need help, I need some kind of Bible study tool. There's some good commentaries. That's part of what we're here for. Hey, what's a, don't go to the commentary first. But after you've read through the letter several times, and you're wanting to go into a deeper study, and you say, what's a good commentary about this? You know, come to, that's part of why we're here. And I'd say, well, Phillips has a great New Testament series. You know, go check his series out. It's, they're not super fancy. He doesn't use big words. <laughs> Warren Wiersbe, same deal. He does not usually use big words. He explains things really well. Um, who else? Uh, that Ryrie, Charles Ryrie, the study Bible I had. So in addition to the help of the Holy Spirit of God, I want you to understand that God designed us to get help from each other, too. So get with other believers in your local church. Let their strengths and giftedness from God help you. This is how God designed it. Help you in your weaknesses or areas where you're not gifted. That was intentional by God to draw us to him and then also to draw us to each other. He designed it that way. You're good at something that I'm not. I'm good at a particular thing maybe that you're not. And you're good at so- and we all we all help each other. If you say, man, so-and-so is really good. I'm going to go pray with them about this or ask them this or talk to them about this. Go, go do that. That's why we're here. That's, the Holy Spirit has drawn each one of you here for a particular reason. He's the one who's gifted you with a particular gift or a particular ability. And he, that was not by accident. He did that very intentionally, very specifically, so that you're here for a reason and so that you can also lean on other members of the church 
because they're strength, strong in areas where you're not, and vice versa. So I think we forget that, how true that is. Uh, next time, we'll look at studying the Bible. What does it mean? So tonight, we said, read the Bible. What does it say? Next time, we'll look at study the Bible. What does it mean? Any questions? As I wrap us up, pray us out. What was the name of the app? Oh, yes. Bible Hub. Blue Letter Bible has a lot of free tools, commentaries, and also has an interlinear tool, Blue Letter Bible. But I like Bible Hub's interlinear tool a little bit better than Blue Letter Bible. They're both good. But Bible Hub uh, has different tools as well, but one of them is the interlinear. If y'all don't know what that is, so you're reading English, and then whatever your passage you're in, if it's Old Testament, it's Hebrew with it, below it or above it? I don't remember. Below it, it's Hebrew. If you're in a New Testament passage, it's English, and below it's Greek. And you can click on the word. If you're doing a word study, it's all clickable. Or on your phone, touchable, tappable, whatever. <laughs> tappable, is that a word? You can select it. You can do, you, it's got the Strong's number, Strong's concordance number. You can look up what the word means. You can look up how the word's being used. It'll tell you, this is a, um, this is a, a second aorist future, you know, whatever. This is a present middle indicative, second person singular verb for run, you know, whatever. It'll tell you all that. You can dig as deep as you want to, so it's pretty cool. Bible Hub's my favorite interlinear. Blue Letter Bible has one, too but I just don't like how it's set up as much. Yeah, anybody else? What in the world does aorist mean? You look, again, you can look it up on these things. It's pretty cool. Anybody else? The Greek has, for example, Greek has four ways of saying if. In English, there's just one. So look, these study tools, they'll show you that kind of stuff. One means... It's expecting a yes answer. One, it's expecting a no. One, we're not sure. Could go either way, 50-50. And one is, nah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so there's four, it depends on what the setup is. You can look in some of these study tools and see that. Well, that's hel- why is that helpful? Well, that's helpful because how many times is there an if phrase in the New Testament? Uh, and you can look through that and say, oh, this, you know, like when Satan tempts Jesus, if you're the son of God, if you're really, which and it's first class, conditional. You are. If you're the son of God, and you are, blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, anybody else? Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for everything you've given us. You have gone out of your way to win us back to you. You've gone out of your way to inspire uh, the people of God to give us this, these writings, these book, this book called the Bible. You've gone out of your way to protect and preserve that book for us. You've gone out of your way to do all these things that you didn't have to do. Uh, but you did it. Um, you love us, and we're just incredibly grateful for that. And so tonight, um, if there's any obstacles we need to overcome to read your word well and consistently, not perfectly, but consistently and growing over time, I pray that you would reveal to us what those are, help us uh, get rid of those or overcome those through your strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.